0: Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Plant Powered People
1: podcast. I'm Michelle Kane, your co-host and founder of World of Vegan. And I'm Tony Okamoto, your co-host and founder of Plant-Based on a Budget and Food Sharing Vegan. On this show, we
0: talk with plant-powered people from all around the world about various aspects of plant-based living because we want to empower you to learn and explore and evolve in a kind, sustainable, and healthy direction, all while eating the most delicious food and having a ton of fun.
1: And on today's episode, our guest, Dan Buettner, can help you live an extra 10 good years. Dan is an explorer, National Geographic Fellow, award-winning journalist and producer, and New York Times bestselling author. He discovered the five places in the world, dubbed Blue Zones Hot Spots, where people live the longest, healthiest lives. In the beginning of his latest book, he shares that in 2022, 750,000 people in the United States will die from eating the standard American diet. Among those deaths, nearly 443,000 will die from high blood pressure, 213,000 from high blood sugar, and 158,000 from high cholesterol. Meanwhile, Americans will spend approximately $3.7 trillion on healthcare, 85% of it on treating preventable diseases, largely driven by what we eat.
0: We can choose a better way. And today's guest has spent most of his life researching the areas of the world where people live the longest with the lowest rates of disease. And he literally invented the concepts of blue zones. This episode is fascinating and will also inspire you to live healthier for sure and perhaps even live a few more years. So we hope you enjoy. But before we jump in, we want to give a huge thank you to our sponsors of this episode, Careway Home and Yai's Thai. Careway makes the most beautiful non-toxic cookware and bakeware collections. So you can make healthier cooking a piece of cake One of the best things that we can do for our health is to cook more from scratch. And it is so much easier and more fun when you have tools that really work with you rather than against you. And I love Caraway's cookware. They use a ceramic coating that's totally non-toxic, no hard to pronounce chemicals or compounds that are going to be leaching into your ingredients or your food. And when you're washing your cookware afterwards, everything just slides right off. I adore them. You can check them out. And guess what? Right now they are doing a cyber season event, which only happens once a year and you can save up to 20% off on all Caraway products, including their famous cookware and bakeware sets. But they also have some cool new things you can check out like a beautiful tea kettle, mini cookware, food storage systems, and more. So visit carawayhome.com to take advantage of their cyber season event and score up to 20% off your next purchase of non-toxic kitchenware. This deal is not going to last long. So visit carawayhome.com to shop all their incredible products for up to, again, 20% off this holiday season. Go, go, go. And thank you so much, Caraway.
1: I'd like to thank our sponsor, Yai's Thai. They make jarred Thai curries and sauces that have both flavors and make weeknight dinners so simple. Michelle and I love a good family story surrounding food and appreciate that this company was formed in honor of the co-founder, Leland's Yai, which means grandma in Thai. Leland's mother grew up in Thailand and learned to cook from her mother before moving to the United States. And it's so awesome that the recipes are being preserved and passed along through her son and his fiance for us to enjoy in our own homes. They are also delicious, have simple ingredients, and make cooking a healthy and comforting meal after a long day of work so much easier. You can check them out by visiting their website, yaiistai.com. That's Y-A-I-S-T-H-A-I.com. And make sure you use the code PLANTPOWER for 20% off of your order. Hi, Dan. Welcome to the Plant Powered People podcast. We're so excited to chat with you today.
2: I think I'm even more excited.
1: Oh, hard to believe. We're really excited. (laughs) Michelle and I were talking about this all weekend. So we're excited to dive in and chat more all about Blue Zones and your new book. We find it super fascinating. But before we jump in, we would like you to share what your life was like before you started down the path of researching Blue Zones.
2: Well, I had two big phases. For about eight years after graduating from college, when other people were doing useful and productive things with their lives, I went off and bicycled across five continents and set three world records for Alaska to Argentina, another one for biking across Africa, and another one for bicycling around the world including the Soviet Union, which collapsed right after I I finished. I'd like to say it wasn't my fault. For about eight years, I led an expedition company that uniquely figured out how to harness the wisdom of a huge online audience and the collaboration of top experts to solve ancient mysteries. They were called quests. And uh, I got very good at networking with, with top experts, And also taking very complex science and distilling it and simplifying it so average people can understand. And that's been very useful for this Blue Zones work, which I've been doing now for 20 years.
0: And then how did you get there? How did you get to Blue Zones?
2: So I was solving mysteries. I had a full-time staff of 14 people, and we did two expeditions a year. And uh, we specialize mostly in archaeological mysteries, like why did the Maya civilization collapse? Did Marco Polo really go to China, human origins in Africa, etc.? And my team stumbled upon a very interesting mystery. In the year 2000, the World Health Organization reported that the small cluster of islands in Southeast Asia... We're producing people who had the longest disability-free life expectancy in the world. So they were living a long time without disease. Uh, in fact, the longest-lived areas. And I said, aha, that is a good mystery. I knew 77 million baby boomers at the time, and people were going to be interested in living longer. And uh, we did a, a superficial expedition there in 2000. And it was such a success that a few years later, I pitched the idea to National Geographic. I reasoned if there were long-lived pockets in Southeast Asia, what about Africa and Europe and Latin America and North America? And they uh, they liked the idea. They assigned me a big story. This is, this is the days when you got about, in today's dollars, about a half a million dollar budget to write one story you know, you get helicopters and hire scientists. And then I got a grant from the National Institutes on Aging to do the demographic work, which means we looked at all the populations in the world, birth records and death records, to mathematically figure out where people were manifestly living the longest. And my reasoning was, There's a well-established assumption that only about 20% of how long you live is dictated by your genes. The other 80% is something else, probably environment. So I reason that if I could find places where people were living the longest without disease, without diabetes, heart disease, cancer, et cetera, they must be doing something or there must be something going on in their environment that the rest of us could emulate. And uh, that led to identifying, took two and a half years to identify the five Blue Zones. And then we went to work really not until about 2004 at trying to find the common denominators. And that's been the basis of my work ever since. It's ongoing. I was just back in all Blue Zones this year. So I I have fresh insights and uh, excited to unleash some of them on you guys today.
1: Why the name Blue Zones?
2: I work with a very clever physician in, in Sardinia who, when I was starting this work, same time I was starting it, he was looking at birth record data and in, in death record in Sardinia and identifying where where centenarians have lived over the past century and making a blue mark on a map where those centenarians have lived and found that in five villages in the highlands of Sardinia, there were so many blue check marks that it was just a blue blob. And he just, for purposes of ease, started calling it the Blue Zone. And I liked the name, and I got his permission, and I extended it to all the areas in the world where people are living statistically longest. And um, it's it stuck, and now it's a, it's a big movement, actually.
0: Wow. It is so fascinating hearing the background of this and how you got into it because I feel like I've heard about Blue Zones for so many years just in in talking. It just comes up in conversation. It's just a thing people know about. And that you started this based on your kind of for fun passion projects is so, so cool and really, really fascinating. So in terms of what are blue zones, for those listening whom this is a new concept, where are they? What do blue zones have in common? Give us the 101.
2: Yeah. So longest-lived women, Okinawa, Japan. Longest-lived men are in the noral province of Sardinia in the highlands. In Nicoya, Costa Rica, you have a population that spends one-fifteenth the amount we do on healthcare and has half the rate of middle age mortality. In other words about twice as likely to reach a healthy age 95 than we are in America. Uh, The island of Ikaria, Greece, they live about eight years longer than we do, half the rate of cardiovascular disease, and about one-tenth the rate of dementia. So they're living a long time and staying sharp till the end. And finally, in the United States, among the Seventh-day Adventists in Loma Linda, California, here we have Americans Living among us, who are living almost a decade longer than the rest of us, you know, blue zones. It's used as a geographic uh, term, but it's also uh, it's also a uh, a methodology and, and a brand, for lack of a better. And it's about the process we use to have identified these areas and then carefully, with scientific rigor, distill the common denominators. Therein, I I think, lies the the power of of this approach to longevity, because instead of looking for answers in test tubes or petri dishes, which are mostly theoretical, the hormone therapy and metformin and resveratrol and testosterone and all these things that people are shooting themselves up with, none of these are proven. But here we have five populations who've achieved the outcomes we want. They lived a long time without disease. And now, what do they do? And um, the the findings are unequivocal, replicable, and counterintuitive.
0: So, your life has been dedicated to figuring out what these common denominators are, so that the rest of us can learn from that and apply them to our lives. So, what do these populations have in common? What are what are the factors? Is it only diet? Well, you no, know, I think beyond
2: that? Uh, to the, to to the uh, theme of your podcast, first of all, they're eating mostly a whole food plant-based diet, 90 to 100% whole food plant-based. It's the five pillars of every longevity diet in the world are whole grains, wheat, corn, and rice, greens, about 80 kinds of greens, tubers like sweet potatoes and yams, nuts, and then the cornerstone of every longevity diet in the world is beans. If you're eating a couple of beans a day, Probably adding about four years to your life expectancy. Number two, they tend to belong to a faith. Number three, they make their families a priority and keep aging parents nearby, take care of their children, stay with their partner. Number four, they have daily rituals to unwind the stress of everyday living, ancestor veneration or napping or happy hour. Not so much meditation, oddly enough. They have strong sense of purpose a vocabulary for purpose like ihigai so they know why they wake up in the morning which actually conveys about eight extra years of life expectancy they drink a little bit one or two glasses a day not a lot though they have practices that help keep them from overeating we call it harahachibu which is a confucian term used in okinawa It reminds people to quit eating when their stomachs are 80% full. And then uh, finally, number nine, they surround themselves with the right people who reinforce the right behaviors for a long time. Because when it comes to longevity, there's nothing you can do this week, this month, or probably even this year, short of not dying, that's going to add to your life expectancy. The only thing that really works are things that you intend to do for years or decades, or, you know, don't even do them really. Like most dieting is just a Sisyphean failure. Most exercise programs, we start with a lot of zeal and run out of gas in nine months. Supplement taking, same thing. You see the same recidivism curves on all these sort of behavior driven efforts to get healthier. Uh, What we learn in Blue Zones and the big overarching idea is that longevity is not so much pursued. People in Sardinia or Okinawa, they're not you know, signing up for CrossFit or fancy diets or on the internet trying to get some supplement or superfood. It ensues. They live in environments which subtly architect their unconscious decision to be better all day long, every day, in ways people, the people don't even feel it. They don't even realize that they're doing it. And they're doing these behaviors that are conveying an extra decade of healthy life.
0: I want to talk briefly about carbohydrates. I know that that's a huge staple in blue zones. And yet in America, it is, people are terrified of them. People think they shouldn't eat them at all. There's all these diets that are totally carbohydrate free. Can you talk a little bit about t- carbohydrates and what you've learned based on your experience? And should people be scared of them at all? And what's the difference between different types of carbohydrates?
2: Well, first of all, carbohydrates is the worst word in the nutrition. It should be banished from the dictionary because, on one, carbohydrates can be the healthiest food in our diet. They can also be the least healthy. Both lentils and lollipops are carbohydrates. Lollipops are metabolically horrible for you, and lentils, I would argue, are the healthiest food in the world. 65% of all the calories that people in blue zones intake, we did a meta-analysis, by by the way, 155 dietary surveys done in all five blue zones over the past 80 years. 65% of the calories they put in their mouth are carbohydrates. But they're almost all complex carbohydrates. They're not eating the refined sugars or the sodas or you know the white bread that we do. Again, it's beans and grains and nuts and greens and so forth. So we are hopelessly confused, and by the way, anybody listening right now, I don't blame you for being afraid of carbohydrates, because you know, most of the carbohydrates we get in our grocery stores today are bad. About 70% of all the food, the packaged food in grocery stores contains added sugars and is processed or or you know ultra-processed, all of which we know is driving most of the chronic disease in this country, that and the cons- overconsumption of animal foods. And uh, in blue zones, they're not doing these things. They're growing most of their own food, eating cheap peasant foods, but they've developed techniques over the decades to make these foods taste delicious and and um, palatable. So you want to eat them every day.
0: In America specifically, it's we've gotten ourselves into quite a situation <laughs> with food and health and longevity as an American population. Can you talk a little bit about the state of food and health and longevity in America and like how we got here and why it's so hard to eat healthy? <laughs>
2: I actually chronicle this in my, my new book, The Blue Zone American Kitchen, which is coming out now. I look at the history. We tend to point to, at corporations as the bad guys, the crafts, the general mills, the big food, as it's called. But it's actually not their fault. Until about 1960s, there weren't enough calories in America to feed everybody. It was a Cold War issue. And Nixon's uh, agriculture. Earl Butts wasn't a very nice man, but he was very good at creating the system, the agricultural system that's produced the grains very efficiently in great amounts to feed America. And it's the innovation from many of these companies that took these cheap in- inputs and created the foods that we eat today. The problem is we've over-innovated. We produce 4,200 calories a day for every man, woman, and child. And really, we only need about 21 to 2,400 calories, depending if you're a man or woman. So about twice as many calories. And then there's enormous incentive for these marketing companies like General Mills and Kraft to to, um, create food that is irresistible. So we keep buying and keep eating, even though we're not hungry. And in the process, and this mostly started in the 1970s, we came up with emulsifiers, artificial sweeteners, formulations, about 2,500 food additives that the FDA has approved. Many of the uh, names we wouldn't even recognize that ended up in our food supply. In 1900, the average American ate about six kilograms of sugar a year. We're now up to 70 kilograms a year so about 150 pounds of sugar for every man woman and child and that is metabolically poison for us for diabetes heart disease cancer now, our meat consumption uh, much of this grain which has been produced so cheaply since the 1970s is fed to animals and those animals they, the, the the price of pork beef and chicken have gone down to artificially low prices So we, you know, people are, they want to stretch a buck uh, so they can buy these foods that we've been evolutionally hardwired to crave and they're cheap and they're massively unhealthy in my view and not good for the planet, not good for the other, you know, the animals that give their life so we can have a pork chop. And the result is we're eating over 200 pounds of meat every year to over 200 pounds of dairy. And That's not good for a body. These these um, calorically rich, nutritionally weak foods are making us fat and unhealthy. And it's not because you know politicians love to point and the the soda industry and big food and the beef industry. They like to point at individuals and say it's your responsibility to eat healthy. But then they unleash us out into the world, the real world. Where ninety-seven out of hundred choices in a restaurant or in rural America in a grocery store are unhealthy choices. So you're up against such staggering odds. It's very hard to be to eat healthy in this country. You have to you have to be smart. You can, by the way, and I like to talk about later on how we can do that. It's not the way you think, uh, but it's easier. Uh, and it's probably more delicious than you think.
1: I would love to chat about that. But first, I want to go back to your book because I learned a lot. As we mentioned, you've got a new book, The Blue Zones, American Kitchen. We're excited for people to go pick that up. And in that book, you talk a lot about really, really shocking statistics about 750,000 people in the United States dying from a standard American diet. And you go into details about how many of those deaths are from high blood pressure or high blood sugar or high cholesterol. And I'm wondering why you think that is. If we have the information, if maybe someone is listening to this podcast or even me, I eat, I enjoy a candy. I enjoy things that I know are bad for me. Uh, Why do you think it is that we're not taking this information so seriously and we're waiting until we get a knock from the Grim Reaper and the doctor is telling us, hey, if you don't make a change, you are going to die in six months. Why are we waiting until that time to make a, a lifestyle change that we could start now and have it not be so serious.
2: Because the odds are so catastrophically stacked against us. So we are genetically hardwired to crave fat, sugar, and salt and eat those as much as we can. Because for 99% of human history, there weren't enough calories to go around. So we'd have to eat anything we could you know, rodents and grubs and, and anything we could forage for. So n- now uh, we live. We we evolved a, in a, a, an environment of hardships and scarcity, and now we live in this environment of, of overabundance and ease. So, uh, you know, you can know all day long that you're not supposed to eat a Snickers, and I know you should eat a Snickers. I know I should eat a Snickers, but. I'm starving, and I, I I go pick up my laundry, and there's a vending machine. I go change my oil. There's another vending machine. I go get my diabetes. I'm not on diabetes, but don't have diabetes. But where you go get your diabetes medicine? There's a gauntlet of candy bars like Snicker bar. Discipline is a good thing, but discipline is a muscle. Muscles fatigue, and pretty soon you're reaching for that that candy bar. Over 50 percent of all retail outlets in the United States, from where you get your oil change to where you pick up your diabetes medicine, shove this stuff in our faces. And we're genetically hardwired to want it. And even though we know it's not good for us, you can only override your genes so many times before that discipline wears out and, and we're getting. People don't, our lawmakers don't want to realize this, but the answer is not trying the folly of thinking we're going to talk 330 million Americans living in marinating in all this crap food to make better choices. It's not until we change our food environment, emulate Blue Zones, where the healthy choice, the whole plant-based food choice is not only the easiest, most accessible, cheapest, it's also the most delicious choice. When we get there, you'll see the rates of obesity, the $3.7 trillion we're spending on healthcare costs today, 85% of which is avoidable. Not until we change our food environment are those statistics going to start to change in any meaningful way.
0: It also, I mean, similar to when you decide you want to go vegan or eat plant-based or eat healthy, community is such a huge aspect. And I think that's another part that's so fascinating about Blue Zones is the people living living in in blue zones are not feeling struggle with the delicious food on their plate because that's what everyone's eating. And that's what they grew up eating. And that's what they're used to. You see the same even in America or in any country or in any community or family, what you grew up eating and what is around you, what is quote normal for you is easy and delicious. If, If you go to Malaysia, a lot of people there love durian, but if you've never seen a durian or smelled a durian or tasted it, you want to run a thousand miles away. And it's just what, what is around us has such an impact. And so I think a lot of the changes, they're not going to come in the supermarkets or in the vending machines or from laws. It has to be individuals who learn the information and start living that way and show an example of that it can be delicious and share that food and show to your community that it's, it's possible delicious and you feel so great. And then as more and more people step into that, it will become more normal, familiar, and you won't be so alone. Like when people go vegan, the hardest thing is if you're all alone and no one around you is plant-based, eating plant-based, oftentimes it's not going to last. But if you're around a community who's also eating that way, or you have potlucks where you can go around people who are eating that way, then suddenly it's easy and fun. So it's, pretty cool to start seeing healthy communities bubble up. And hopefully we will start to see more representation of blue zone-like habits popping up in a million places all around
2: the world. You have it exactly right. But I back into that exact same idea. Rather than thinking that, you know, you're just going to be the example. Well, in addition to you being the good example, I think for most people who are trying to improve their diet out there, The best thing they can do is make friends with a vegan or a vegetarian. And by the way, the kind of vegan you befriend makes a difference. It's a lot of vegans out there who eat a processed food (laughs) diet, which is not any better health-wise than, you know, an animal bay. I mean, health-wise, I know cruelty is a big thing. But the point being, eating behaviors are measurably contagious, a very clever Harvard He's now at Yale, his name is Chris Nicholas Christakis, has proven measurably contagious. The, the people you hang out with influence what you do. So if your three best friends are obese and unhealthy, 150, your chances are 150% greater of being overweight. Uh, if you hang out with people who drink too much or do too many drugs, that's contagious. So one of the best things you can do, and this is a very clear lesson from the Blue Zones, is make friends with a vegan or vegetarian who eating whole foods, I would say. And why? Because every time you're with them, they're going to require that you're going to restaurants that serve good whole food, plant-based. When you go over to their house, they're, they're going to serve you that food. And when they come over to your house, they're going to expect you to learn how to cook a few dishes that are delicious that they can eat. And that's how it spreads. And I, I just, I've never seen any convincing data that education works or that dieting works. They all have single digit percentage success after a year. And, you know, they work kind of in the short run. But unless you can build, shape your immediate ecosystem so that you can unconsciously better eat, eat more whole food plant-based, it ain't going to work. Uh, if you're trying to make that transit. And, you know, there's a handful of people who have the heroic discipline necessary or feel the pain of animals enough that they're, you know, they're not going to, you know, pet their dog and, you know, eat a pig. But uh, for most Americans out there, it requires living in a place where they have healthy choices. Uh, and, and uh, setting up your house, you, when you go to the grocery store, make the preemptive decision there to only stock your pantry and your refrigerator with whole plant-based food, and then proactively make some friends. That's what, that's what works for the long run.
1: Well, you were doing this research in the beginning. Were your eating habits the way they are now? And if they weren't, how did you get inspired to make those changes and also bring your own community on board?
2: Yeah, I know. I was a meat eater. I mean, I wasn't a heavy meat eater, but I was a meat eater when I started. And uh, it was very clear to me that um, people in Blue Zones weren't eating uh, this kind of food. You know, then I, I wrote this book, Blue Zones Kitchen, where I actually went and stayed with people, old ladies mostly, and saw the way they cooked. And Witness the amazing transformation they could make taking peasant foods and making them taste like two-star Michelin food. I always said the most important ingredient in a longevity diet is not beans or miso or whatever, it's taste. So it was really tasting this food that helped me make the change. And then my Blue Zone work naturally uh, had me gravitating towards the plant-based community and the vegan community. And um, that further accelerated my own personal transformation to plant-based.
1: Was that transition hard for your family and your friends to accommodate you and to maybe also follow you along on your plant-based journey?
2: You know, I tend to be the leader in my family. So, you know, i impose it upon my family. Um, They're the plant curious. I would say Because of me, my family's animal food consumption has been cut in half. Uh, I haven't gotten them 100%, but I'm happy with a cut in half. My day job, I started these Blue Zone project communities. We have 72 of them around the country, and uh, I have a full-time staff of almost 200 people who help influence municipal policy to favor healthy food over junk food and Junk food advertising. And we give Blue Zone certification to schools, restaurants, grocery stores, workplaces, and churches that go processed. I mean, that go away from processed food towards whole plant based. And I have found over and over again that if you shape people's environment so the delicious, healthy choice is easy and affordable, people will do it. And in every one of those cities, we've seen their obesity rate go down. So it's possible, but it's just uh, taking the right approach. The wrong approach is wagging your finger at people, telling them you're a bad person if you don't eat this way. And the right person, the right way to do it is to make it easy for them, make it delicious for them and set up their environment so it becomes mindless for them.
1: Michelle, and I couldn't agree more we see the most change in being kind and compassionate and uh, meeting people where they are. And a lot of our listeners here have that same philosophy. So thank you for continuing to amplify that message. What are the best things that people can do to increase their chances to live longer? Say someone here is still eating the occasional McDonald's and they are very busy, they have a family, what are some easy ways to start moving toward a Blue Zones diet?
2: First thing is rather than taking the time, effort and money to go to start dieting, go out and buy yourself a good plant-based cookbook. You know, I have this new one, Blue Zones, American Kitchen, 100 recipes, lived 100. But there's lots of other good ones. How Not to Die has a good one. The Share's Eyes have a great one. And page through it with your family. Identify one recipe a week that you're going to cook. Get the necessary equipment. Most of of these recipes only require a, a crock pot or an Instapot. You don't have to have fancy cookery. And um, make it with your family. And once you find a half a dozen dishes that your family loves, my job is done. Your job is done because as long as they taste it, we know they've actually made it. They have the skills. They have the equipment to make it. It tends to be a cruising altitude. They're going to eat it over and over again because they'll, they'll have that that memory of taste. I think that's one of the most powerful things they can do. Secondly. Write out your grocery list before you go to the grocery store, and don't veer for it. Don't put any of the meat or the processed foods on your list, and don't veer from that. And only allow healthier foods into your house. If you want to go out and uh, celebrate once in a while, and and uh, you know, be naughty, you know, there's, there's probably room for that in most people's life. I mentioned before how important it is to surround yourself with healthy people. And then also we know things work like taking the toaster off of the counter. People have a toaster on their counter after two years weigh about six pounds more than people who don't have a toaster. Number two, have a fruit bowl. Expensive, beautiful fruit bowl placed in a well-lit place in your kitchen as a nudge to keep it full. So when you're walking through your kitchen, you like to say most of us are on a seafood diet uh, we eat the food we see. So the food we're seeing is a, an apple or a pear or an orange. That's way better than a bag of chips on the counter. So that really works. And, um, you know, I, there is one, I, I, I think, sort of glaring statistic for people who want to lose weight, be healthier. This Adventist health study followed 103,000 Americans for 30 years and registered what they ate, um, uh, how much disease they had, uh, how much they weighed. And they divided them into four categories. The meat eaters, the lacto vegetarians so vegetarians who also eat eggs and cheese, pescatarians, so vegans who eat a little fish, and then vegans. And of the three categories, the people with the least amount of cancer and heart disease were the vegans. The vegans and the pescatarians also weighed, on average, 20 pounds less than the meat eaters or the the cheese and egg eaters. So if you only want to remember one thing, to lose 20 pounds, eat a whole plant-based diet. That's all you have to remember. It makes it easy for people. You don't have to weigh your food. You don't have to see if it's got high or low alkaline. You don't have to worry about protein and carbohydrate and all that crap or mail order things. Whole food, plant-based recipes you enjoy, bam. You're going to lose weight and you'll live six to 13 years longer depending on your age.
0: I really love what you share about finding a half a dozen healthy meals that you love. I haven't heard of it. I've never heard it phrased that way before. And that really resonated with me because personally, I lean more heavily than I'd like into comfort foods. And I'm trying to find a more sustainable way to incorporate health into my family's meals. But I have a toddler, he's really picky. And so sometimes it just feels impossible to serve something other than pasta but or tofu or just like the few things that we have that I know he loves. But thinking about that makes it so much more manageable. Like I can try three dozen recipes to find six that he really loves that are diverse and incorporate vegetables and gra- and grains and legumes and all the healthy things. Um, so that just makes it feel really doable to me. I think that's a great challenge to give everybody listening is to try recipes for the next month and find six, a half a dozen that you love and then put the ingredients for those on your shopping list regularly or print out the recipe and keep it in your kitchen. Make it Make it a weekly recipe. Pick a day that you make that every week to like really solidify it into your life and you know it's something that you love and it will become easily seamless and mindless. I really, I really love that that you shared that. I think uh, Michelle, I'll
2: give you another tip for your totter. This is evidence-based, by the way. Kids, little kids like different fruits and vegetables. they may hate cruciferous vegetables like broccoli, but love things like carrots. So the trick is before you feed them when they're hungry you take those little tiny one ounce cups and you chop up a variety of fruits and vegetables or if you just want to give them vegetables carrots in one and and, uh, celery and little pieces of broccoli and green red pepper and put that in front of your toddler and watch him or her and see what they naturally gravitate to and then they, they might not touch one of them. the things they like to eat, then make note of that and make food with those vegetables in. That's how, it, that, so, you, so you've removed the sort of friction of getting them to, to, uh, you know, forcing something they're not going to like. And, um, that, that, that was a study done out of Yale and, um, it really works.
0: I love that. I'm definitely going to try that. And I've also like, I'll, I'll, I'll serve something to Graham that he doesn't touch. Like I'll use peas as an example, even though he loves peas. I'll put them on his plate. He won't touch them. The next day or like a few days later, I'll put them on his plate again. Doesn't touch them. A few days later, I put it on his plate again and he starts eating them. So uh, the other thing for any... Well, if you've had
2: your child for three days, probably he might. <laughs>
0: but like sometimes <laughs> kids are weirded out by things they've never seen before, things they've never tried before. I hope yeah. that everyone has had peas because that's like the easiest basic, but um, making it familiar, making sure you're modeling it is makes such a big, a big difference. So don't give up on something just because kids don't try it the first time. But I also love figure out what they really, really enjoy and incorporating that. That is such a good tip. I want to talk for a second. I mean, you traveled the world and a lot of what you found in your research is that different areas areas of the world have diets that more closely align with like the blue zone way of eating. So how how would you say different cultural diets compare? And is there anything we should take note from that?
2: How they, How do they compare? What do you mean by that?
0: like the standard American diet, not great. Almost nothing aligns. We're not eating whole foods. But what about in Japan? Like Like a typical meal in Japan oftentimes is incorporating a lot of whole foods. So are there like cultural foods or ways of eating that we should take note of or that that it's just kind of fascinating to learn naturally incorporate so many more healthy foods?
2: Yeah, well, essentially now the poorest people in, in the world, not in America, but in the world, are eating the healthiest diets as a rule. So in India and Africa, because they tend to be basic food inputs like grains and beans and, and and they can't afford the meat, they can't afford the processed foods. Of course, the Mediterranean pattern is shown to be very beneficial, um there's an area in india that has the lowest rate of alzheimer's disease they also eat a ton of beans um but sadly the standard american diet is washing across the planet like a cancer and uh, it's tanking a lot of the blue zones um you know that until um for you know most of my lifetime it was malnutrition that killed most of the people prematurely in the world now, most of the people who die in the world, the eight billion or so people will die of overnutrition. They'll die of obesity or, be, or metabolic disease from eating too many calories and too many crappy calories. So the world's not going in the right direction.
0: It is so sad. <laughs> it's so sad. Being an American, knowing the impact that our country's food system is now having on the whole world, many of those places which used to be pretty healthful n- naturally in their diets. So uh, I f- on behalf of uh, this country, I'm so sorry to everybody mm-hmm. um who's impacted by that because it is everybody and our families and our family members who we lose too soon. So thank you so much for sharing this work. You've been sharing this message for a long time, are there rays of hope and where do you see the shift going? Are you seeing changes being made or communities or individuals sprout up that, that makes you feel like there is hope for having a a, a health, more healthy human population in the future?
2: Yeah, well, I think there. the federal government hasn't woken up to smell the cappuccino yet, but there are lots of cities, Fort Worth, Texas, um, Naples, Florida, the whole island of Hawaii, the beach cities of California. These are all Blue Zone Project cities. Uh, Albert Lee, Minnesota, the very first ones who have undertaken a five year project where the public and the private sector come together. They do a deep analysis of their current environment. Uh, they look at the policies that have worked elsewhere at creating a healthier food environment and they um, Past the ones that are the most effective and feasible, um, that we're the where we're, we're going to see the the best change is at the municipal level, right now, and um, there are several cities around America that are 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 really far ahead. I do think there's a plant based movement in um, in America, though. Sadly, I went to the natural food show in um, Philadelphia last week, and most of it was just junk food highly processed food with the, you know, sort of organic, you know, organic sugar. I mean, it it just wasn't all that. So that was a little bit sad. Um, When when a company comes along and offers delicious, whole food, plant based, ready to eat meals, Americans will start to eat it, I think. And you'll see a big change then.
1: Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all about blue zones and ways people can live longer. Where can people find you? Where can people buy your new
2: book? Yeah, so I spent the whole pandemic with a National Geographic photographer. We found the lost American diet of longevity. The book is called the Blue Zone American Diet. It's a hundred recipes to live to one hundred. It's awful like a. It's like a coffee table book, and it's also part science writing. And that's available on Amazon right now or ideally your local bookshop. That comes out December 6th. I'm very good at answering direct messages. My my Instagram is at Dan Buettner. I have a website, danbuettner.com. And um, I want you to thank you guys for listening. Thank you for your interest and especially thank all the people out there who spent the last uh, 50 minutes with us. So I'm, I'm extending a big uh, electronic hug to all of you. <laughs>
1: well thank you so much it was great chatting with you we'll meet we'll make sure to link all of your um all of your book and your ways to connect with you
2: i love it thank you so much tony and michelle
1: thanks thanks dan thank you again to our sponsors of this episode caraway home makes the most beautiful modern non-toxic eco-friendly non-stick easy to clean cookware. Make sure you check out carawayhome.com for their cyber season event that only happens once a year to save up to 20% off. And Yai's Thai makes jarred Thai curries and sauces that have bold flavors and make weeknight dinners so simple. You can find them at Yai'sThai.com. That's Y-A-I-S-T-H-A-I.com. And make sure to use the code Power for 20% off of your order. We hope you felt inspired by this conversation with Dan. The reality is that people can hear this all day long, but actually making the habit changes is not something that many people do. So let this be your friendly nudge for you and for the people you love and for me and Michelle, <laughs> uh, to incorporate some of this knowledge into our lifestyles and everyday choices. Even small changes and shifts can really, really add up over time. And uh we all want to spend some more years of our lives with our loved ones. Definitely. And speaking of loved ones
0: and the holidays coming up, both Tony and I have tons of holiday resources for, resources for you at Plantbased on a budget and at worldofvegan.com We have holiday guides for Christmas and Hanukkah and so many other holidays too. We have gift guides. If you want to get some kind, compassionate, sustainable gifts, we have those for you as well. We will link all those holiday resources as well as all of Dan's information and books about Blue Zones over on the show notes at plantpoweredpodcast.com. When you go there, also be sure to sign up for our podcast e-newsletter so that you'll receive an email when we come out with new episodes. And we also have some fun recipes and things to share with you there. And again, you can find that at plantpoweredpodcast.com. Thank you all so, so much for listening. We wish you a happy kickoff to this season and we will talk to you in the next episode.
1: Bye. Bye.